Well, again, welcome to our, our brand new sermon series, In the Midst of the Mess, uh, as we study through the book of Ruth. We do all sorts of different kind of sermon series here at the core, but I think my personal favorite is when we do cover a whole book of the Bible. We did that last summer, too, if you remember, uh, Esther, and we looked at First and Second Peter uh, and, and, uh, and Jude. And um, this, this year, we're doing uh, Ruth, and then immediately after this one, we're going to spend four weeks on Ruth, and then we're going to go through the book of Jonah. Uh, both are two incredible Old Testament stories, and we have so, so much that we can learn from these stories. I, I love going through whole books of the Bible because we're able to look at the setting, the context. We're able to look at every verse uh, as, as God originally gave it to us, um, and so many practical applications that we can take from it. Sometimes, though, when we say, we're going to study the book of Ruth, it's, temp- it's tempting, or maybe you, you, it goes through your mind, uh, that you think, yeah, but what is this going to have to do with my everyday life? We're going to study a book of the Bible, okay, but is it going to be practical? And I can assure you, it absolutely will be. So here are some of the things that we'll be talking about over the next four weeks as we study the book of Ruth, and you tell me if it maybe applies to something in your life. Have have you ever lost a loved one? No, we know uh, Megan has, and, and her family, and you probably have as well, and if you haven't, I can assure you that you probably will. It's in the book of Ruth. Have you ever had to say a really hard goodbye to a loved one? It's in there too. Have you ever had to uh, move and live in a new community, try to make new friends, get adjusted to a new location? It's really hard to do. It's covered in the book of Ruth as well. We're going to learn about that. Have you ever felt hopeless and stuck and that you saw no no possible solution to your current situation. And you were scared and frustrated and you didn't know what was going to come next. You know, we're, going to, we're going to be talking about that too. So there's so much, so much for us in this, in this incredible book of the Bible that we call Ruth. I hope that you're going to be able to come to all four messages in this series in the next four weeks. So... Why don't we jump right in? We're going to study the book of Ruth, and let me just give you a little bit of the setting before we start reading the verses so that uh, you kind of understand when it happened and some of the real history around it. So first of all, it happened around probably 3,100 years ago is when this story actually took place. It is not a parable. It's not a made-up story. It's real history with real people in real places. Uh, 3,100, 3,200 years ago, it happened during this uh, time in Israel, when the people of Israel were in a time called the period of the judges. And I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but when the people of Israel first got to the promised land, they are now their own nation in their own land. And for the first 400 years or so that they inhabited the promised land, the, the land of Israel, uh, they did not have a king. God had said, you are not going to have a king. You're not going to be like the nations of the world. I am your king. Trust me. Listen to me, obey me, follow me. I am your king, and it will go well for you in this land if you will. And they didn't. They rebelled against God again and again. They forgot about God. They didn't worship God. They started to go after false gods, gods that aren't really gods. Time and again, they kept doing this, and every time they did, God would allow some kind of hardship to come upon them, usually in the form of foreign invaders that would come in. And then the people would say, oh, yes, we have sinned. We're so sorry, God. They would turn back to him, and, and God would send what, what we call judges. And don't think of judges like we think of them today, but a rescuer, a ruler, a leader, 
who would come and rescue them from that foreign oppression. And the people would be so thankful to God and they would worship him again and, until they didn't. And if you read the book of Judges, you're going to see this cycle repeating again and again and again. So we do know that the, the book of Ruth, what we're, we're about to read, took place sometime during that 400 years. And we get the impression probably toward the later part of those 400 years. Um, and that setting kind of helps us understand uh, what's happening in this story. Um, it, it says that in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Okay? Just everyone just did whatever they thought was right, and that's what the time of the judges was like. So with that setting, with that background, let's jump right in. Ruth chapter 1, start, uh, starting at verse 1. We're going to read all 22 verses of chapter 1 where it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And I'm going to pause periodically, and this will already be one. Don't let the word famine just slip by without noticing it. I think in our day and age, the word famine doesn't carry much weight. You, you hardly ever even see it on the evening news where they report all the bad stuff Hardly ever famines. Because for us, famine means the price of bread goes up 20 cents. <laughs> uh, we, we don't even notice, right? With modern uh, technology and farming and global uh, agriculture and the ability to preserve foods, we, we just don't notice famine anymore. But back when this was written in an agrarian culture with unprocessed foods and limited ways to store them, famine meant my family might starve to death. This is what was happening at the beginning of the book of Ruth, a famine. So, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Again, this is real history, we're given real names. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. So, does that name Bethlehem ring a bell, I hope? Uh, it's the birthplace of Jesus. He would be born there 1,100, 1,200 years after this story took place. In fact, what we are studying here are some of the ancestors of Jesus. And I'll bring that out in, some future, uh, in the future messages that are coming. Uh, but they, leave, they live in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, if you translate it into English, literally means house of bread. It was apparently a pretty fertile place where, where barley would grow, where they could make plenty of bread, except they couldn't because famine had struck. And it makes me wonder if maybe this is one of the times of apostasy when Israel was turning away from the Lord. Maybe this was one of the judgments that, that came upon them. Uh, we don't know exactly when it was, but uh, this, this famine comes upon Bethlehem. So he hears that 40 to 50 miles to the east, uh, with, with mountainous terrain, uh, climates can change drastically from place to place. In, in a country called Moab, the neighboring country, there apparently there's still, there's still rain. There are still crops. There's food to eat. So Elimelech packs up his family, and he moves to Moab for a time. Now, understand that he is leaving his culture. He's leaving his people. He is leaving the promised land where God has promised to be with his people. And in a sense, he's not directly, but he's kind of leaving the one true God because this is the country that he gave them. Now, it's not that he's totally becoming an unbeliever at this point, but he is leaving the place where God dwells among his people to go to this foreign place called Moab. And God did warn people about the people of Moab. He, he warned the Israelites not to take wives from the people of Moab because they worship false gods and they would lead you astray. So lots of warnings about going to a place like this. And 
And just this far into the book, we can already see that tragedy has struck. The mess has begun. There's famine. They're living in a foreign culture. Things are not good for Elimelech and his family. But there's more. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons in a foreign land by herself without her family and friends around her. She's there and her husband dies. But it gets worse. They, her two sons, married Moabite women. Not the most God-pleasing thing that they could have done. One of them was named Orpah and the other, Ruth, by which this book is named. A Moabite woman. So after they had lived there for about 10 years, they long famine, they've been there a while. Both Malon and Kilion, her, both, both of her two sons, also died. And Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. Can you picture Naomi at a time like this? How she must have felt? Not only did she lose the people that she loved the most, They say that there's nothing harder than losing a child. She lost both of her sons. Not only did she have that, but she's also living in the foreign culture. Not only that, but in those days, a woman was not able to earn a living. A woman was not able to hold land. How was she going to survive? There was a serious question about that. She was doomed for a life of poverty, for sure. A life that would rely on the good graces of others if they wanted to help. And if they didn't, she might die of starvation, This was the future that Naomi was looking forward to. So, it says, they, um, so let's let's fill in this takeaway though, before we go any further. Uh, First takeaway is this, when life is a mess, do you ever try to fill in the the blanks before the pastor says them? You're not going to guess this one. Um, When life is a mess, you'll be In distress. It rhymes. Maybe you could have guessed. Now, at first glance, when I say that, when when life is a mess, you'll be in distress. You say, did you really have to do a fill-in-the-blank for that one? Isn't that one kind of self-evident, Pastor? Did you have to waste our time with that? Bear with me, though. there, there, There is a reason I put this here, because I think the truth is that we live in a culture today, in modern-day America, where we, we kind of get it into our minds that life is just always going to kind of be pretty easy. Life, we kind of, life should be pretty good. Uh, we, we kind of deserve a good life here in this country. And, and it, doesn't it take us a little bit by surprise when things go wrong, when things go bad, especially when they come in multiples like they did with Naomi? When a bad thing happens... Then another bad thing happens. Is it just me? Do they usually come in threes? Then another bad thing happens. And that's, a ch- that's challenging. And we feel like we're in distress, and, and, we, and yet we feel like, well, that shouldn't be that way. Well, I'm telling you right now that when life is a mess, you will be in distress. Expect it, anticipate it. Sooner or later, it is going to happen. And, and here's another truth that, that goes along with that. When, don't we as Christians sometimes think, and I've heard so many Christians feel this way or think this way, or assume that this is to be true, that when life is bad, just be glad. I had to make it rhyme for it so it's memorable. When life is bad, just be glad. Isn't that what a Christian is supposed to do? And, and don't we sometimes do that with people? That when they're going through something hard, we, instead of crying, crying with them, 
giving them a shoulder, which is what they really need, by the way. Instead, we say, oh, that's okay. They're in heaven now. Everything's good. Smile. Look up. Be cheery. Be happy. No, it's okay. When life is a mess, it's okay if you're sad. It's okay if you cry. It's okay that you experience distress. Wasn't that in the psalm that we read earlier in Psalm 13? We heard these words, the questioning of God in the midst of the mess. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? You ever felt that way in the midst of the mess? Did you feel distress? I just want to tell you, first of all, that's okay. You're allowed to. If you felt distress, it's not because you're a weak Christian or you're not a strong person. It's because you're human and it's what you're supposed to feel when your life is a mess. But the story doesn't end there. Let's go on. Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home, home to Bethlehem from Moab. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So with no more family ties in Moab, with nothing to live for there, with no one to provide for them there, she hears that back in Bethlehem, things are turning for the better. God is providing for his people there. Let's go back home. Let's go back to Bethlehem. Now, the, the cult, culture in that day would say that if a, someone that is very near and dear to you is going to be leaving, especially for good or on a long trip, the, the culture would say, well, we need to walk with them for a ways. It's kind of the way of saying your goodbyes, walking with them on part of their journey, and then you turn back and go home as they would continue on their way. Um, I wonder if that's what's happening because of what we read next. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law as they're traveling, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And you, you've been kind. You've fulfilled your cultural obligation. Now, now you can go back home now. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye. And they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Okay, so after re- walking that required distance, Naomi's like, okay, you know, let's be honest here. You, you fulfilled your duty. You walked with me this far. Go back. Go back to your home country. Go back to your people. And you can find husbands there. And, and she, she's ready to say her goodbyes. But at first they insist, no, we're, we're both going with you. We're not going to leave. Might have been a polite thing, again, a cultural thing that they said that. So reading on it says, but Naomi said, she's insistent. No, 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 no. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? And then she has some logical reasons. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old, too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, that she might find another husband, even if I had a husband tonight, which obviously wasn't going to happen, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? You're going to hang around for another 20 years until I would have children and then then you could marry them? That's not going to happen. No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She is having so much trouble seeing the light that there's any possible hope for the future. 
Uh, in fact, she kind of lays it out in her mind. And, and don't we do that too sometimes? That we, we look at our current situation and we try to see a bright side. We try to see how this could possibly turn out for good. Sometimes we can think of some. And that's what we hang our hope on. And yet, sometimes it's like with Naomi. She couldn't figure out a way. So, okay, crazy idea. Best case scenario I could possibly come up with, today I find a new husband. We get married tonight. I get pregnant tomorrow. And I have kids in nine months. What, are you going to wait around and marry sons that are 20 years younger than you and then you're going to marry them? No, this, this isn't realistic, my daughters. You, you need to go home. You need to go back to your own people, your own country. And, and she's, she's bitter, she's angry, she feels like the Lord is against her. And then verse 14 says, At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah, one of the two, there's Orpah and Ruth, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. She heads home. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth refuses to leave. And we finally have a turning point in this story. It's not great yet. It's not about to get great tomorrow, but we have a turning point in the story. Starting at verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi is so insistent. She knows their future with her is not going to be good. Ruth, go back with her. Um, by the way, she's not the greatest evangelist here, is she? Go back with her to your gods. That's where she's at right now. She sees no hope. But Ruth replied, now, zero in on this, snap to attention, some of the most important words, I think, in the whole Bible, some of the most beautiful words ever written by human beings on the planet of any culture of any time, this incredible promise and oath that Ruth now makes to Naomi says this, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And, I, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely. That was code for an oath being made to the one true God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I promise and swear this to the one almighty God, she says. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, that's an understatement, she stopped urging her. All right. All right. We're, I guess we're in this together. Ruth. This Moabite woman who obviously had come to know the one true God while living in Elimelech's household, married to one of his sons, she makes this amazing promise of faithfulness and commitment to a foreign woman who just happened to be her mother-in-law, but she will never leave her. What's even more amazing is she's ready to give up the God that she had grown up with or the false gods she had grown up with, and she is ready to dedicate her life however long it may be, to this one true God, the God of Israel, the Lord, she's there. She's leaving behind her community, her culture, her customs, her family, and she's going to go with Naomi no matter what. Naomi didn't deserve it. Naomi's being bitter and angry. She's telling them just to go home, but Ruth is persistent and she will not let go and she's going to love her mother-in-law no matter what. What a beautiful, beautiful promise and story. How could Ruth make a promise like this? I have no other explanation but to say she must have known the one true God. 
she must have known his grace and his mercy, his undeserved loving kindness for her, which she could then show to her mother-in-law and promises lifelong faithfulness to her. So I want you to write this down as your next big takeaway. When, you, when life is a mess, when life is a mess, believers make you blessed. This is so important. When life is a mess, believers will make you blessed. Those who uh, know the Lord God, other Christians can be with you to walk with you through it, and they will bless you as they do not forsake you, even in your hardest times. So here, this is so key. In fact, write down these three words too. Find faithful friends. In your life, find faithful friends so that when the mess comes, you will have faithful friends that will walk with you through it. So no matter what happens in your life, maybe you've got a relationship that's going off the rails. Maybe you're about to get a divorce. Maybe you're estranged from your adult child and and it's a struggle and and you don't know how to get through it. But if you have a faithful friend that will stick with you no matter what, it will be so much better. A Christian friend that will stand with you. You know that that court date's coming up. And and you're really afraid about what the result is going to be. Find faithful friends. Have a faithful Christian friend there with you. You've got the health diagnosis and you know that things aren't going to be pretty. It's going to be hard. Find faithful friends that will walk with you during that difficult time. You've seen the things that you need to change in your life. You know you can't go on like this in that area, whatever it is. You know that addiction that you need to get over, right? You know, you said it for years, you need to quit smoking, it's time. You know the drinking is out of hand. You need to, you need, you need to get that under control. The, the gambling, it's a real problem. You, you know you need to lose the weight. Find faithful friends that will walk with you in the midst of the mess. And you will be blessed, God promises us. Believing friends will stick with you, even when life gets hard. So my, my, uh, my homework assignment for you is two quick things. First of all, would you identify somebody in your life that's in the midst of a mess? Who is it? Somebody just popped into your head. Love them this week. Be faithful to them this week. Do something for them. Oh, they, 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 they're pushing me away. They don't want it. They've, they've said no. I don't care. Be forceful. Be a Ruth. Push yourself on them because they will be blessed as you are a faithful friend that walks with them in the mess. And the second part of your homework assignment is, what is your mess right now? What are you going through right now? Invite somebody in. Find a faithful friend that will walk with you through it. All right, let's go on. We've got, um, we've got four verses left. One final point. Ruth chapter 1, 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. About a week, week and a half journey. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because, because of them. People walking, in, a couple of women walking into town. What's this all about? And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? She's, she's really aged. She, she's not looking so good. And so... She says, don't call me Naomi. You know what Naomi means? Pleasant. Stop, stop calling me pleasant. Stop calling me Naomi. Call me instead Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Oh, she's bitter, all right, isn't she? In the midst of the mess, she is bitter. So imagine today somebody named Joy, and they go through a lot of calamities in their life. Hey, I'm getting a name change, everybody. Stop calling me Joy. Could you start calling me Bitter? My name is Bitter Old Woman. That's what Naomi tells people to call her. That's where she's at right now. Have you been there? You ever felt like that? Ever felt all alone? And that, that God's just against you and everything that's happening to you? Is it really hard to be positive and pleasant sometimes? It is, isn't it? So, verse 22, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's the last verse of this chapter. So we, this whole sermon, we've been doing this. We've been doing this nosedive, about to slam into the ground. Things are bad and getting worse, and she's getting bitter, and how, how is life ever going to get better? And then all of a sudden, right, right here at the end, we're just doing this quick pull-up. Now, we've got three more chapters, so you're going to have to come back, and I don't want to ruin it all for you, but we leave today with just with this glimmer of hope. There's two things in chapter 1 that give us a glimmer of hope. One we've already talked about, and that is that Naomi is not alone. She's got a faithful friend, a faithful believer that is walking with her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's not even a, a, an Israelite, but a, a foreigner who has adopted the Israelite God. She's walking with her. That's one bright point. And the second one is that barley harvest. Remember back in verse 6, we read that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. God's time of judgment is over. His people have turned back to him. He's providing food for them once again. There is hope. God is providing. Things are turning around. So it's that glimmer of hope that I want to leave you with today. And it's our third takeaway. If you want to write, fill in this blank. When life makes you bitter, God promises better. God promises you better. Even when you're in the midst of the mess, even when you don't see any hope, uh, and isn't that the way it is for us? When, when we're in the midst of it all, we can't see a, a, a solution to it all. We can't imagine how better could result from this. We, we lack the imagination. We can think of all the possible outcomes, but none of them are good. But stick with us here through this book of Ruth, and you're going to find how God worked even her situation for blessing and good. God promises better, and he promises better to you too. In fact, there's a verse that, that I love, love for you to memorize if you haven't already. Romans 8.28, uh, somebody reminded me, we were, we were using the same verse with the, the, the Esther series exactly one year ago. Um, fits with Ruth too. Remember this verse. And we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good of those who love him. That's his promise to you. Now, you haven't seen the evidence of it quite yet in the book of Ruth. We're going to get there, so make sure you keep coming back. But go with that glimmer of hope. God is at work to bless you too. Even if you can't figure out how it's going to happen, it's his promise. And, and to assure you in that promise, there's one thing you need to remember. When you doubt that, keep taking your eyes back to the cross. The empty cross, the empty tomb three days later where you see the proof and the evidence that God is at work for you to bless you. 
He sent his son. He went to the cross. He took your guilt, your shame, your failures. He took your bitterness. He took that too. He took it to the cross and he bore bore it all for you so that you can be right with God. So that the heavenly father will only smile upon you and promises you an eternal future with him. This world doesn't always get better, but there's something so much better that is yet to come. And that's God's promise to you. So I don't know if I've, if I've shared this with you before, but I, I think it's worth repeating. I'm convinced uh, through my studies of scripture that when we get to heaven, there are two things that are going to come out of our lips. The two things that I think we're going to say as soon as we get to heaven, the first two things out of our mouth, woe and oh. Except I didn't say them with the proper expression. So the first thing I think, we're going to, all of a sudden we break into the eternal kingdom, the first thing we're going to say is, whoa! <laughs> it's so much better than I ever could have imagined. We're going to see the beauty of everything, the beauty of God. We're going to see him face to face, perfect provision, um, our loved ones that are there, all these things, whoa, our minds are going to be blown by what we see as soon as we enter into the eternal kingdom. And I think the second thing that's going to come out of our lips is, oh, now I get it. (laughs) Now it all makes sense. Oh, God promised better. (laughs) Oh, man, did he deliver. Oh, now I I connect all the dots. Now I see why all that happened why I suffered that, why I went through that, why this thing happened, why that. God, you're so good. Oh, now I get it. So go, go today with, with that little bit of hope in your heart, and we're going to unpack this more over the coming weeks. Whatever your mess is today, know that God has promised better, and he is with you. Even when you don't feel it, he's there, and he's helping you, and he'll be with you every step of the way. You do have a good future ahead of you, a sure and certain hope. God promises. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, there are so many ways this world gets messy. We've seen the mess in our own lives. Sometimes we cause it. We're the ones that make it because we sin. We do our own thing instead of what you want. We're selfish we don't love others as we should. Sometimes we're, we're uh, people who uh, re- are on the receiving end of, of sin, that, that uh, we experience a, a lack of love from others. People hurt us in various ways. Uh, in so many ways, sometimes it's circumstances, sometimes it's things that come up in our life where, where we just don't feel your love anymore. And like Naomi, sometimes we might even get bitter. Help us to do what what the guy that wrote that Psalm 13 did and bring our questions and our struggles to you and to remember what we learned today that even when things get really hard, even when life gets really messy, you are there. You are in control. You are the God who is guiding all things and there is something better that you are working through it. Whether we ever see it or not in this world, we know we'll see it in the next when we break into heaven and say, whoa, And as you give us understanding and we say, oh, so bless us and be with us and help us leave today with with, uh, hope and with faith in Jesus' name. Amen.